Welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. I am your host, Bridget Natale, and with me as ever is my lovely co-host. I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm doing finger guns. The finger time. guns, Sarah. Yeah. And our special guest. Recurring guest. Recurring guest. How dare you get my title wrong? I, you change it, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I do sometimes change he it. Does. What is your name? Uh, my name is Frank, and I'm glad to be back. Thank okay. you for having me. <laughs> And we are picking up with 1912, and we were at rowing and sculling. So, there is a term that I'm going to be using that is very uncomfortable for me to say, and I'm, because I'm terrified, like, I'm going to slip up because it's a weird word. Rowing and sculling. There were four rowing and sculling events. You've been using the term coxswain for episode after episode. <laughs> that now. one what I'm not is, worried about. What is it that's going to throw you for a loop? Single skulls. Coxed four inriggers. Coxed four outriggers and coxed eights. Inriggers is very uh, uncomfortable to say out loud. Really? Inriggers is more uncomfortable than coxswain? Yes. I'm uncomfortable now. There is. This was the only Olympics in which it comes up so much. Inrigger coxed fours or any inrigger rowing event was held, which I am glad for because as I wrote in my notes, because not only is that an extremely uncomfortable word to say, I also can't find any decent information online about what that actually means. Oh, we phased out the concept of this from yes. the sports? Uh, the only people who do it are the Scandinavians. Uh, basically, what I can tell from the really technical description... They have these like really technical descriptions and like diagrams and stuff that I can't tell what the differences are. Um, the innies, inriggers... <laughs> <laughs> That's not helping. ...are when the oars are connected to the hulls and the outies are where they just rest there. I am not sure. Originally, the IOC wanted more events, but the 2,000 meter course at oh God, this is a long one. Dürgardsbrunviken was only wide enough for two boats and had two slight turns, one starboard and one port. It was judged to be too small for any of the other desired events. I mean, that's good. They were trying to get rid of events earlier. Yeah, in the, uh, but they wanted rowing. They want to get rid of cycling. They want to get rid of all bad. the cycling and add a bunch more rowing. And no boxing. It's illegal. It's not really, but it is. Only the <laughs> Scandinavian countries actually rowed like this, which is the inrigger thing, which is probably why it only ever happened in Sweden. There were two Swedish teams, two Norwegian, one Danish, one French. The French finished dead last. The Danish team took gold and one of the Swedish silver. No bronze medals were awarded in any of these events. The course was only wide enough for two boats at once, so the final races only had two competitors. For some reason, they didn't award bronzes to the runners-up or have a bronze medal race between them, though they were awarded diplomas of merit. This is despite the fact that in both the in-rigger coxed fours and the coxed eights, there was only one losing semifinalist. So... There were only three teams in those two, and they still didn't give the third oh, one a bronze. Oh, come on. Yeah. So, there were only two non-Europeans competing in single skulls. Cecil McVilly of Australia and Everard Butler of Canada. Unfortunately, McVilly was disqualified in the first round for colliding with Martin Stanky of Germany's boat. Butler made it to the semifinals with 1912 European champion... Polydor Veerman of Belgium and top European sculler William Kinnear of Great Britain. Butler gave Kinnear a good race in the semifinals, but Kinnear ended up winning by one length. In the finals, he repeated this, winning gold by one length over silver medalist Veerman. 
The Swiss and the Italians have been trading off European championship wins in the Cox 4 outriggers, but neither showed up to compete in the Olympics. The British team from the Thames Rowing Club was the favorites, but were e defeated easily by the until then unknown German crew from the Ludwigshafener Ruderverein. Ruderverein? There's no umlaut in that one. The best coxed eight teams in the competition, the British Leander Club and the Canadian Argonauts, were drawn to compete against each other early in the competition. That's a good name. Argonauts. Yeah. but So they're like the two best teams and they like compete mm -hmm. against each other in like the quarterfinals. Gotta knock them out early. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta make way for these uh, European teams. The Argonauts, the Canadian Argonauts, were defeated way earlier than they probably would have been otherwise. The Leander Club had tough races and the rest of their heats as well, narrowly beating an Australasian and a German team. The other, other British crew from New College pretty much coasted in races against cupcakes. The Leander crew apparently had been honed in that trial by fire and beat the New College crew in the finals again by one length. So we've got... Uh support for a very elaborate system of judging Olympic uh, gymnastics now. We haven't figured out seating for the boat races yet. Yes, yeah, yeah, no. Which is, you know, because they don't, they do these races in other competitions, so why would they use any of that? Um, shooting. There were 18 shooting events. The 18 events can be broken down into five major categories, and then those broken down by distance, positions, etc. There was long-range Long-range rifle shooting, small-bore rifle shooting, pistol shooting, clay bird trap shooting, and running deer shooting. Again, not an actual deer, but a target on a track before you get excited. No, you guys Why are we going to be excited about that? Excited? That's horrible. No, yeah. because you guys always want the duels to be them actually shooting at each other and the well, running deer. not at a deer. Yeah. Okay, if we, arm, if we arm the deer with some antler-mounted guns that it knows how to use, then I'm back on board. Okay. But, like, I don't really just want to cool. shoot at deer. I mean... I kind of don't like deer, so I'm actually okay with just shooting. Yeah, yeah. Whoa! Yeah, no, we grew up I'm in from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. <laughs> There's more deer than people. And they all want to jump in front of your car at every moment. <laughs> they it's do. The I worst. am constantly terrified. And they them. also want to eat anything you try to grow in your yard. 283 competitors from 16 nations competed. Sweden, Great Britain, Norway, and Russia sent the most competitors. Despite this, Sweden and the United States dominated the medal count. Both won seven gold medals, and Sweden won 17 medals overall, with the U.S. winning 14 overall. We're not going to go through all 18 events, but here are some highlights. In the military rifle 300-meter three-position event, 18-year-old Swedish schoolboy Nils Romander was set to win a gold medal in the final round. All he had to do was hit the half figure with his last shot, and he'd make it. A crowd of excited Swedish spectators gathered, eager to watch his triumph. But all the attention flustered him. He missed the shot and came in fifth. Oof. The man who won gold was Sandor Prokop of Hungary, who placed fifth, sixth after the first round. His second round was perfect, scoring one of seven perfect rounds out of the competition. This was a surprise, as even though he was a returning Olympian, he had finished 43rd in London. Maybe he shot the 42 people ahead of him in that <laughs> game and got up to the top. After the final round, there was a three-way tie for second place. There was a shoot-off between American Carl Osborne, Norwegian Embrit Skogen, and Greek Nikolaus Levitas. Levitas? I don't know. There's a lot of eyes. Uh, Osborne scored 99, which was the second highest score for a round in the event and took the silver. Skogen came in third. 
There was some confusion with regard to the rules for the small bore, bore rifle 50 meter prone event, where apparently only the Swedish knew what was actually allowed, something the English did not appreciate. We have a excerpt about this from Olympic shooting. So I'm gonna read that one. In Olympic shooting, Crossman described the results of this match as follows. The Americans had not trained especially for the 50-meter prone team mats, but they had some hopes of winning with their Stevens M414 single-shot falling block rifles. They soon found the sights inadequate. The rules specified the prone position for this mats with no artificial support. The officials ruled that the ground was obviously not artificial and that the shooters therefore could rest their rifles on the ground. Strangely, only the Swedish team seemed to know about this and they took full advantage of the knowledge resting both the left hand and the forearm and the butt of the rifle on the firing line. The English raised quite a fuss about this, but lost and went on to win by shooting ad... went, went on to win by shooting ability... shooting ability. 762 to the Swedes 748, with the United States four points behind for a third out of the six teams. So aside from the um, apparent... Uh, Shadiness. Shots taken at ability itself, <laughs> as I enunciated that. Um, they were forced to sort of hold their rifles aloft from the ground while prone. Yeah. That's significantly harder. Yeah, but apparently they didn't have to do that, but the Swedish team was the only one who knew that. Right. Which is shady. Did the Swedish team go last? It, I don't I don't know what order they went in. Because I imagine everybody after them was like, oh, hold on. Well, how far can you see? Like, can you see if they're like on the ground or up? Unless you're judging them. Like, mm, anyway, I don't know how close you can get. Um, Alfred Lane of the U.S. won three gold medals over the course of the competition, all in pistol events: pistol shooting, free pistol, fifty meters, and military pistol, fifty meters. Uh, team event. Oh, sorry. I there were a lot of commas there, and I there were three events: pistol shooting, free pistol, fifty meters, and military pistol. 50 meters team event. But Free Pistol was his most impressive victory, winning by 25 points over silver medalist fellow American Peter Dolphin. One of the most dominant performances in Olympic shooting history. Despite earning the highest individual score in the dueling pistol 30 meter team event, he was not able to carry the Americans to a medal in that event and they came in fourth. Instead, the gold medal went to Sweden when the Carlberg twins, Wilhelm and Eric, each earned a perfect score of 120 fit hits on target. Russia earned silver and Great Britain bronze in that competition. Soccer. Again, calling it soccer instead of football because we're Americans, and Jim Thorpe competed in these Olympics, and I will confuse myself if I don't do it this way. <laughs> uh, the soccer tournament at the 1912 Olympics was again run by FIFA. And for more information on FIFA, you can listen to a swindled episode I don't remember which one. There was it was recent. The swindled podcast episode about FIFA is pretty incredible. It's good, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Right. Originally, the rules allowed for each FIFA member nation to send up to four teams to the Olympics, which meant that Great Britain originally planned to send English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh teams. But then the Irish, Scottish, and Welsh teams withdrew, and FIFA decided it would be more appropriate to just have one team from each country anyway, so just the English team went. France and Belgium both entered teams but later withdrew, which meant there were 11 teams in the tournament. It was a single elimination tournament with a loser's tournament for all losing teams, except for the ones knocked out in the first round. 
The team that won the final match won gold, with the losing team from that match winning silver. The two losing teams from the semi-final round played a match to determine the bronze medal winner. England won gold, Denmark silver, and the Netherlands bronze. So what was the point of the losing team tournament? Fun. I just finished, like, <laughs> or to finish, like, figure out busy. The, the, the placement of the rest of the, after third, like, fourth through eleventh. Oh. Mm. Swimming. There had been swimming events at every Olympics leading up to 1912 and every Olympics since then. The only one major change in Stockholm was that women were allowed to compete for the first time. Mm, that seems a little incongruous with the previous episode. Yeah, God. And no, Dick Herberton from the beginning was like, I don't want women, but then like, so 1896, there weren't any. Right, right. But the fact that there were women swimming seems incongruous with the banning women from the pentathlon, which is part swimming. Yeah, but there's also a lot of other parts. So, but I mean, I'm going to ask logic from this. Uh, the one major change in Stockholm was women were allowed. Uh, there were two women's events, the 100 meter freestyle and the... Uh, 400 meter freestyle relay. So it's four by 100 meter freestyle relay. There were more men's events and they were more varied in terms of strokes. Seven events in total, 100 meter freestyle, 400 meter freestyle, 1500 meter freestyle, 100 meter backstroke, 200 meter backstroke, 400 meter breaststroke, and four by 200 meter freestyle relay. This is place again. The events were held outdoors at Dürgard's Brunviken in an inlet where they set up spectator stands. The course was 100 meters long with the beach on one end and a steamboat pier on the other with the edges marked by pontoons. American Charles Daniels, the two-time Olympic champion and up until recently world record holder in the 100 meter freestyle, had retired from competition in 1910. His record had been broken only a few months before by German Kurt Brettig. Brentig was the favorite going into the Olympics. His performance was ultimately lackluster, finishing fourth. Instead, this guy's kind of cool. The gold medal went to Dark Horse from Hawaii. Duke Paua Kahanamoku competing for America. He was an unknown going into the Olympics because he had rarely competed outside of Hawaii due to the difficulty and expense of traveling to competitions on the mainland. He did hold several records in Hawaii, but apparently, this was not noteworthy enough to consider him a favorite. There was Hawaii not known for its water sports? Yeah, apparently. Don't call them water sports. There was a communication problem with the American swimmers regarding the semifinals. Kahana Moku, Kenneth Huzag, and Perry McGillivray, who had all qualified for the semifinals, failed to appear. Apparently, they thought their wins in the quarterfinals qualified them for the final race. The swimming officials actually allowed them to have an extra heat and added Mario Massa of Italy, who had missed the quarterfinals due to a, quote, misunderstanding, which I think is why the Americans missed as well. I don't know why. <laughs> they decided that the winner of the extra heat could advance if they posted a time faster than the third place swimmer in heat one. Kahana Moku did one better. He posted a time of 1 minute 2.4 second, seconds, which matched Bretting's world record. Huzog came in second with a time of 1 minute 6.2 seconds, which was equal to the third place time from Heat 1, so he was allowed to advance. Bretting was also in the final, along with teammate Walter Rahm. The fifth swimmer was Cecil Healy from Australia. 
Kahanamoku took the lead early and Breting never even came close. To the point where Kahanamoku actually eased up near the end, winning with a time of 1 minute 3.4 seconds and still beat silver medalist Healy by over 2 meters. Huzag came in third. The world record holder in the 440 yard freestyle was... That is... Oh, okay, that's why, because it's in yards. All right, the world record holder in the 440-yard freestyle was Australia's Frank Beaurepaire. He had won the silver medal in 1908 in, in the 400-meter freestyle and would go on to compete in the 1920 and 1924 Olympics, but he was banned from competition in 1912 because he was determined a professional after giving lectures about swimming and life-saving. Was he paid for the lectures? Apparently. Did he swim during the lecture as part of the lecture? I that wouldn't be a lecture. It seems like that wouldn't be professional swimming then either. You would think, but they decided in 1912 it was and then changed their mind in 1920. Uh, with bow repair out, Australia's best hope was Harold Hardwick, who had won the 440-yard freestyle at the 1911 ASA meet. He would also later go on to win the Australian Professional Heavyweight Championship in 1915. In boxing, I guess. But Hardwick came in third, and Britain's John Hatfield came in second. The gold medalist was George Hodgson of Canada. He had burst onto the Canadian scene in 1910 when he won every race he entered at the Canadian Championships. And then he did it again in 1912. In between, he won the mile race at the Festival of the Empire Games in London. He would later join the RAF during the war. Not only did he survive, he was awarded the AFC and the London Board of Trades, Board of Trade Silver Medal for rescues made at sea. He would then return to Olympic competition in 1920. Uh, George Hodgson also won gold in the 1,500-meter freestyle race. German Otto Farr became the world record holder, world, uh, held the world, world record in the 100-meter breaststroke, but came in second to the U.S.'s Harry Hebner. Paul Kellner of Germany took bronze. The Germans swept the 200-meter breaststroke, but in the 400-meter breaststroke, Norwegian Thor Henning took bronze, so they didn't sweep that one. They did win gold and silver. The Australasian team won the the, the four-man 200-meter relay with a time of 10 minutes, 11.2 seconds, a new world record. Silver medal team, the Americans, posted a finishing time that was a full nine seconds slower at 10 minutes, 20.2 seconds, and Great Britain took bronze with a time of 10 minutes, 28.6 seconds. There were no favorites going into the women's competition because there had never been an international women's swimming competition of any sort before this. Great Britain fielded some very swamp very strong swimmers, including Jenny Fletcher, who had won the British ASA title in 1909, 1911, and 1912. Daisy Kerwin was the world record holder in the 110-yard freestyle and had even broken her own record in June of 1912, leading up to the competition in July. And then, like, I hit something and now... Okay. Originally, Australia was not going to send any women to compete. This is these ladies. Uh, Australian sports. They swam there from Australia. <laughs> uh, almost. Australian sports authorities considered it a waste of money to send them, but there were two very strong swimmers who were determined to get there. Uh, to get there anyway, Sarah, uh, Fanny Durack, and Wilhelmina Wiley. That's my cat. She wanted to hear about these Australian ladies. Uh, the New South Wales Ladies Amateur Swimming Association voted that they should go if they paid their own way. Durack was able to fundraise, and Wiley's friends and family pooled resources, and both of them were able to go along with Durack's sister Mary, who served as chaperone. 
it, in the end, it would have been smart for the Australians to have a little more faith. Dirac won gold, Wiley silver, and world record holder Fletcher took bronze. Unfortunately, the Australian women were not able to compete in the relay as they only had, there were only two of them. They tried to enter anyway, offering a tr to trade off and both do two legs, but the officials wouldn't go for it. Without them, the British won gold, Germany silver, and Austria bronze. So we have a very uh, good ratio of like lots of world records to very few weird mishaps in this yeah. whole set of events. Like this is this is very impressive. This is this is probably the best run one that happened outside of Greece. I'm sorry, my cat is has a lot to say about this. Diving. With new recurring guests. A new recurring guest star, Mimi. There are four diving events. Yes, I credited you. All right. There are four diving events at Stockholm, three for men and one for women. The first women's medal went event for diving. There's an explanation for how points worked and it makes no sense and they don't do it that way anymore, so I'm not bothering to explain it. <laughs> it's diving, not fancy water entry. 43 men. Uh, I have 43 men and 14 men, so I think that's 14 women from 10 countries competed. For the springboard competition, there were only two compulsory dives from one meter and two compulsory dives from three meters, followed by three optional dives from three meters. There was a board of 18 allowable dives, which they could choose from for their optional dives. Germany swept the first floor four places. Plain and fancy high diving and plain high diving were both dominated by Eric Adlers of Sweden. German Albert Zerner, who had come in fourth in the springboard, made it to second in the plain and fancy high diving, so the Swedes didn't sweep that one. They did sweep the first four places in four places in plain high diving. The women's plain high diving was largely a Swedish competition. Of the fourteen competitors, twelve were Swedish, one Austrian, and one was British. The competition consisted of two compulsory dives at five meters and three compulsory dives at ten meters. Margareta Greta Johansson won easily placed first by all five judges. Lisa Regnell of Sweden won silver, and Isabel Bell White of Great Britain earned bronze. Tennis. We're getting more of these mysterious South Africans in this one. Uh, again, for tennis, there was covered and lawn competitions. The covered tennis competition was fairly decent, but the lawn tennis competition was pretty weak. This was because they scheduled it for the exact same time as Wimbledon, and even then, Wimbledon was the event for serious tennis players. Wimbledon came up last time uh, during the Olympics It was also, well. yeah, it well, because it was in London. At that point? Oh, they just did it there. Yeah, yeah. But now they're like, hey, it worked so well last time, let's just do it concurrent with Wimbledon again, but somewhere else, and it turns out, no? No, because the London ones, it wasn't concurrent with Wimbledon. It, it was they just the used location the facilities, of, yeah. Um, there this was also one of the Olympic events in which women were allowed to compete. There were eight events in total, four lawn tennis, there was men's singles, men's doubles, women's singles, and mixed doubles, and the same for covered courts. With nearly all the best players, both men and women, not present for lawn tennis, there was some unusual results, like South Africans Charles Winslow and Harry Kitson taking gold and silver in men's singles and gold in men's doubles. The women's covered court competition only had eight athletes who competed, and none of them were top players at the time, so it was a lot of similar results. The men's covered court competition, however, boasted one of the strongest fields in international competition ever. Favorite Tony Wilding of New Zealand lost in the semifinals to Britain's Charles Dixon. Dixon was expected to win gold, but ultimately lost to André Gobert of France. André Gobert also won gold with partner Maurice Germont in, in, 
in men's doubles. He did not compete in mixed doubles as the only French woman who competed at these Olympics entered the mixed doubles with her husband. They did not medal. Charles Dixon and Edith Hannam of Hannam of Great Britain won gold in that event. Edith Hannam also won gold in women's singles. Mimi, can you get out of here? She's in the way. All right. Tug of war. Five teams entered the tug of war competition. And this time it's on fire. It that's is, what we talked about yeah, last week. Yeah, that's that's definitely what happened. Two weeks ago we talked about this. Is, anyway. Uh, Austria, Bohemia, Great Britain, Luxembourg, and Sweden. A round-robin tournament was planned for the event, but then Austria, Bohemia, and Luxembourg never showed up. All that was left was Great Britain and Sweden, so there's only one match. This was the best two of three. The first round, the Swedish won with a slow and inexorable pull. The second round, some of the British team members sat down. Unfortunately, this was against the rules, which explicitly forbade any part of the body making contact with the ground except the feet. That seems like the only rule. The officials tried several times to get them to stand up, but when they wouldn't, they declared Sweden the winner. So. Yes, in a much more reasonable ruling than the gun one, I think you are not allowed <laughs> to use the ground for tug of war. Water polo. This was the fourth time that water polo was an event at the Olympics. In 1904, the event, quote, had been conducted under some unusual rules, and only American teams competed. That's like the entire 1904 Olympics. In 1908, the British team had won, specifically the Osborne Swimming Club of Manchester. They were the favorites again in 1912. They were almost knocked out by the upstart Belgian team in the first round, who took them to overtime before they were able to win 7-5. The British also had a tough time with Sweden in the second round. They led 2-1 to one at the half, but the Swedes tied at 3-3 shortly after intermission. Britain was able to score three goals before the end of the match, winning 6-3 in regulation time. The gold match against the Austrians was the easiest round for them. They won 8-0. And because the tournament was conducted under the Bergvall system, Austria did not win silver. Silver went to the winner of a sec separate second-place tournament conducted among all teams losing to the winning team. And the bronze went to a tournament conducted to all teams losing to a second-place team. tournaments all the way down. So in the end, Sweden ended up with silver and Belgium bronze. One man on the British team had one of the longest Olympic careers of any Olympic water poloist. Paul Pavel Radmilovic competed in 1908, 1912, 1920, 1924, and 1928. He is one of only three Olympics to compete in five water polo tournaments. Though without World War I preventing two Olympic games from being held, we can imagine he would have competed in seven, putting him in a league of his own. He also competed as a swimmer in 1906, 1908, and 1920, meaning he appeared in six consecutive Olympics. When two were canceled in the middle of that. <laughs> He won four Olympic gold medals, three in water polo, and one as a member of the 4x200-meter freestyle relay team in 1920. In 1967, he was the first Briton inducted into the Swimming Hall of Fame. So there's two almost proto-Michael Phelpses at play in this Olympics. Who's the other one? Whoever it was that won like a million things when we were rattling off swimming results a few minutes ago. Oh, well, yeah, there was, there was, that was uh, Paul Pavel Radmilovich. Oh, same person? W wait, oh, you were saying earlier in the swimming. I'm not going to scroll back. Okay. It seemed <laughs> like somebody I... was crushing it in the swimming events. I can't remember. I'm sorry, it's late. <laughs> Wrestling. 
170 athletes from 18 nations competed in five wrestling events, all Greco-Roman style, broken up by weight class, featherweight, lightweight, middleweight A, middleweight B, and heavyweight. Wrestling was a very was very popular in Sweden at the time, but only Greco-Roman style. Luxembourgian IOC member Jean-Maurice Pescator suggested that there also be a freestyle competition, but he was voted down. And Mimi's like running around on papers she right now. You probably can't even hear that. It's fine. I'm just saying in case there's like weird paper wrestling, that's no, my cat. That's just me. No. <laughs> the competition was conducted mostly outdoors in the Olympic Stadium on three five by five meter mats. There was a small enclosure nearby that was used when it was raining, but otherwise they were out in the sun. Each round lasted 30 minutes, after which the judges would declare a winner or order another round. There was no limit to how many rounds they could order. If neither wrestler was aggressive enough, the judges would declare that they both lost. Today called disqualification... Blood sport in here. Today that's called disqualification due to passivity. So this is still a rule. Oh. It doesn't come up often. Finland, Sarah, you look delighted at this. I'm horrified. Greco-Roman wrestling is uh, played first blood to the ground. (laughs) Uh, First blood to the ground for a three count. uh, Finland was the wrestling powerhouse at these Olympics. They won three of the five weight classes and seven of the overall 15 medals, including at least one medal in every class. They also entered the most wrestlers with 37. Sweden entered 34, and the next highest was Germany, who entered 14. There are only three medalists from this event who weren't Swedish. Or Finnish, Swedish, or German. Estonian Martin Max Klein, competing for Russia, won silver in the middleweight A event. Soren Marinus Jensen of Denmark won bronze in the heavyweight. And Bela Varga of Hungary won bronze in middleweight B. Nobody won gold in middleweight B class, as Anders... Algern of Sweden and Ivar Bolling of Finland tied for silver. Algren was the better known of the two, having won medals at three international competitions in 1910 and 1911. He made it to the final round with eight wins, four throws, and four buys or walkovers. Bolling had never won an international competition and made it to the final with two throws, two decisions, two wins by default, and two buys. So it was expected that Algren would win fairly easily. He did not. The match started at 9.20 a.m. and was called at 8 o'clock p.m. with no decisive victor. And not disqualified for passivity. They were going at it for 11 hours. With the short intervals after every 30-minute round, they effectively wrestled for 9 hours. The judges ultimately declared the match a double loss and both tied for silver. But again, not from passivity, just from like, just from, like they you're both Wolverine. Yeah, <laughs> like they just w- 11 hours of wrestling outside. I mean, that's the sun. more than like modern day WrestleManias, maybe. I'd have to look it up. We're just two guys going the entire time. <laughs> yachting. Only six nations competing in yachting in 1912. Denmark, Finland, France, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. There were four events, and each nation participating won at least one medal, with Sweden winning the most with four, and Norway getting the most golds with two. Despite the fact that they were almost all Scandinavian, save France and Russia, they used American measurements for all the boats. That's all I have about yachting. (laughs) There wasn't a whole lot of interesting with yachting. Art competition. Hmm. Is this new? This is new. And it was de Coubertin's idea. He'd wanted it since the beginning, and it wasn't until 1908 that he was able to get the rest of the IOC on board. However, when the 1908 Olympics moved from Rome to London, the arts competition got dropped. 
There wasn't a whole lot of support for it in 1912 either. This upset de Coubertin. He said that the arts competition were part of the Olympic tradition from ancient Greece. That they had decided it would be a thing in 1906 and they kept getting pushed out. And if they didn't have 1912, he would show minimal interest in the games. So the rest of the IOC gave in. <laughs> I mean, he's making a lot of valid points. And a few somewhat uh, tantrum-sounding points. Yes. But uh, still. In Stockholm... It was finally happening. De Coubertin was very excited about it, saying, Now the moment has come when we enter a phase and intend to reestablish the original beauty of the Olympic Games. In the high times of Olympia, the fine arts are combined harmoniously with the Olympic Games to recreate their glory. This is to become a reality once again. Were they ever held again after this event? I don't think so. There were five art forms <laughs> in the competition. Town planning, literature, music, painting, and sculpture. I questioned two of those. <laughs> it was... Very difficult finding judges for these events, and most academics and as most academics and professionals in these fields did not appreciate the whole competition aspect being brought to them. It is unclear who actually ended up judging the thing. Uh, judging the thing, following the money reveals something interesting. The Swedish organizing committee gave five thousand francs to the IOC to carry out the contests. The actual works of art were sent to twenty Rue Oudinot in Paris. Which is where the de Coubertins lived. From what records survived, it appears that de Coubertin himself ended up being the jury for everything. Which is especially noteworthy when it turns out that the gold medal winners in literature, George Holrod A. M. Esbach of Germany, turned out to be de Coubertin and his wife. De Coubertin... I, I was actually going to try to make a point that a literature competition would be tough from multiple languages... Because your judges are probably not that multilingual. But I didn't really expect the surprise. <laughs> I am my own medalist and judge. Uh, de had published an autobiographical novel under the same pseudonym in 1899. And his wife, Marie, had grown up partly in Germany and had translated the epic poem into German. In fact, Marie, née Rothan, had grown up in the village of Lutenbach, which two and two towns close to it were... Hochrodbird and Esbach o Val. So the names were Hochrod and Esbach. Aside from that little exercise in vanity, the two works that were noteworthy out of the whole thing were in the sculpture competition. Walter Winans of the U.S. won the gold in sculpture for his bronze statuette of, quote, an American trotter, another horse statue, which brought his number of Olympic medals to three. He won silver in 1912 in the team running deer shooting competition and gold in 1908 for the individual running deer double shot competition. R. Tate McKenzie of Canada won a bronze for his bronze cast medallion titled The Joy of Effort, which was inserted into the outer wall of the Olympic Stadium. And now we're at the big show, track and field. Mm, you skipped town planning. The, there was nothing noteworthy about town planning. Well, explain to me what it was. Like, I literally, they, they like, planned a town? Yeah, they built, like, little Here's models. some graph paper. Here's a model kit. Like, go to town? I guess. I... <laughs> track and field. The big show, as ever, at the Summer Olympics was track and field. 537 athletes from 27 nations competed from July 6th to July 15th. And if we can get 527 of them out the other side of this, we've gotten through an Olympics without a murder. <laughs> Haha. Ha. Uh, <laughs> the big winner in the medal race was the U.S., who took home 42 medals in these events. Sweden earned 14 and Finland 13. 
running races. The American dominance started with the 100 meter dash, but not without considerable effort. There were a lot of problems with the heats, particularly heat one of the semifinals, which had seven false starts. Howard Drew, who ended up eventually winning the heat on the eighth time they did it, had to drop out of the actual finals because he had pulled a muscle in the process. After one of the false starts, eventual gold medalist Ralph Craig and bronze medalist Donald Lippincourt just kept running and finished the full 100 meters anyway. And there's the excerpt where they talk about why this happened. Yeah, there's a quote from him. There were seven false starts, and I made one of them. Another American who had competed in the Paris Games. Those 1900 games were kind of horrendous, you know. He told me, if you ever get to the Olympics, if anyone moves a muscle, you go too. Don Lippincott and I ran the whole hundred meters on one false start. The foreign officials were totally incompetent, and I was afraid not to keep running, even though they fired the recall gun. I was told, don't take the chance. Go. So I did. They did fire the recall gun, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> so the, the ghost of Paris haunts this. I mean, yes. <laughs> I wonder what the time was on the false start run. Uh, who knows? I don't know if they kept, I don't know if they marked it. Well, the electronic uh, sensors should have gone off. Oh, they didn't ever shoot the starting gun, so they don't. Have no, they did shoot this. The, the, this was a false start. It was a false start, but like the false start just means they started before the starting gun. It doesn't mean that the starting gun never happened. Hmm. They'll do a false start. Like it, it happens so fast because it's only a ten second race. Even then. Fair. Um. So what will happen is somebody moves a split second before the, the pistol actually starts. They realize that. They hit another pistol to tell them to stop. How can you differentiate the two pistols? That could just be another go pistol. <laughs> go twice as fast. Anyway. Hold on here. I heard something and I thought it was the baby monitor, but I think it's just people outside. All right, anyway. The 200-meter dash would go a little more smoothly, and Ralph Craig also won gold in that. Lippincourt won silver, and William Applegarth of Great Britain won bronze. The 400-meter dash had at least one intense heat. In the fifth semifinal, Donald Young of the U.S. was one of the favorites for gold. Hans Brown of Germany was not considered a favorite. Braun tried to cut in front of Young on the first curve, and Young reacted, violent, reacted by violently shoving Brown to the outside of the track. Young won the heat, but was disqualified because he body-checked the guy on the track. Look, this sprint is, uh, the rules are first blood to the ground. <laughs> That's the, the running theme <laughs> of this two-part episode. And the final was run with strings separating the lanes. American Charles Reedpath took gold, narrowly beating out Brown on the last curve. Edward Lindbergh of the U.S. won bronze. How often in modern Olympiads do we have to put up strings separating the lanes like I, toddlers yeah, yeah they they know not to like run into each other now or like it's i don't know i don't know what the problem was because they did this in london a lot too there were the strings happening yes i remember several like uh paragraphs about potential elbows to the face yeah. moving someone <laughs> to the outside running used to be a lot more interesting Amer there was defense. All right, Americans won or swept the 800 meters. But what is weird about the records on that race is not the top three, but the rest of them. There are official times for places four through six, and then no time given for the last two. Originally, 
Hans Braun of Germany was credited with coming in fourth with a time of 1 minute 52.2 seconds, which the German Federation recognized in 1924. Photographic evidence is unclear due to differing angles and the technology just not being good enough at the time, but multiple reliable first-person accounts testified that Braun was definitely sixth at best. So now the IOC official records have Braun's time at 1 minute 53 seconds estimated, and his official placement is sixth. Americans Clarence Edmondson and Herbert Putnam, who came in 7th and 8th, still have no official time recorded, even in an estimate. Going into the race, the world record for the distance was 1 minute 52.8 seconds, which all three finalists and the fourth place finisher all broke. That's a little suspicious. No, it was just a really good race. Gold medalist James Ted Meredith finished with a time of 1 minute 51.9 seconds and a new world record. Or they were just better at marking the time because they had the new technology to do it. Oh, yeah. Maybe the, maybe there's just been, like, reaction time lag on writing things yeah, down I don't in all know. previous races. The 1,500-meter or one mile went very, very well. As late as 1985, distinguished track and field historians Cordner Nelson and Roberto Quercetani said it was the, quote, greatest race ever run. Specifically, the 1912 Olympic Games at Stockholm produced the greatest mile or 1,500-meter race ever run from the standpoint of exciting competition between fast runners. Which is, like, what else do you run races for? There were five highly regarded runners entering the race. Defending Olympic champion American Mel Shepard, fellow Americans John Paul Jones, Norman Tabor, and Abel Kvyat. They described Kvyat as diminutive several times he was five foot five yeah that's like napoleon levels of short that's i mean that's short i'm five foot one so like that's like uh, that's fine the fifth favorite was not american but british arnold nugent strode jackson a man of way too many last names who would later change the spelling of his name to arnold nugent strode strode hyphen or strode hyphen jackson was a top talent but had little experience in running the mile Though the experience he did have was pretty impressive, having won the Oxford University Athletic Club mile and won the mile against Cambridge with a time of 4 minutes 21.6 seconds. Not world record world record breaking, but definitely good enough to advance into the finals of the Olympics. All five of the favorites made it to the final along with nine others for a total of 14. Mostly Americans with British, French, German, and Swedish runners as well. The race began at 3.30. French runner Henri Arnaud led the pack for the first 800 meters. Tabor made his move and by 1,000 meters had taken the lead. 30 seconds later, Kvyat had claimed the lead at the 1,200 meter mark, followed close behind by Tabor and Jones. On the final curve, Kvyat was still leading with Tabor, Jones, Jackson, Jones, and Shepard close behind. At the start of the straightaway, Tabor was even with Kvyat. 50 meters to go, Jackson pulled even with Jones close behind and Ernst wide of Sweden closing in as well. In the final 10 meters, Jackson edged ahead for the gold with a photo finish for second place between Kvyat and Tabor. Kvyat took silver and Tabor bronze. Arnold Nugent Strode Strode Jackson didn't compete much longer after winning his Olympic gold, though what he did do, he generally won. He joined the British Army during World War I, becoming the youngest brigadier general and serving with distinction. He survived the war and was awarded the DSO and three bars which, as of 2002, only six British officers had ever received. 
2002 because that's when the book was published. I haven't, I didn't. Haven't, but I mean, it's not directly relevant to the Olympics. Yeah, and I don't. Anyone since then's gotten these bars. And I don't, I don't really know how to find that information about the British military awards. Why not use Bing? He was a British delegate at the Paris Peace Conference in 1921 and was awarded the CBE for his efforts. He later emigrated to America and became an American citizen. And I have an excerpt from things Jackson had to say about his experience at this race. Ah. Perhaps it is impossible in an Olympic mile to notice who got the lead, when and where, and Kiviet seemed to me to have the lead inside most of the way, and Mr. P.J. Baker and I had to get along the best we could, and not very near the front either. Uh, there were rubbed along until the bell went up for the first lap. When we moved up and dropped, separate and several others who no doubt were rather tired after the general bustle and the previous efforts. With 350 yards to go, Paul Jones and Kiviat were well placed, but coming around the last bend, I got in behind them and running wide, caught them with about 100 yards to go. Running neck and neck for 50 yards, I passed them and got home by about two yards, as far as I'm told. A perfect day and capital fellow competitors helped the Olympic record to go, and I am very grateful and proud to have run with them. The 5,000-meter race was won by Hannes Kolmanen of Finland. He and silver medalist Jean Bouin of France both smashed the previous rec world records with times of 14 minutes, 36.6 seconds, and 14 minutes, 36.7 seconds, respectively. They were the first to finish the race in less than 15 minutes. By a lot. That's like 25 seconds. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's significant percent. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, track and field's another set of events where we're getting a lot of records set. Yeah. Is it the, the latitude? Like, the elevation? I, like, what is happening at this I don't venue? No. Is it the technology just being better at timing people? I think that is probably a factor. It, it's but not it's a consistent like, factor. But it's, not 25 seconds. No, 25 like, seconds, I think even I could probably get right. Like, yeah, like, with a it's stop. Not like, yeah. It's not a half a second granularity yeah. on it. So, I'm not sure. Um, exactly. But, I mean, it's also the factor of, like, we talk, we've talked about... Um, like strong heats being better because like you produce better. Sure. Light. So if that happens in the in overall the in the yeah. final, then you just get a better race. Sure. Yeah, and I think I think it, what we're seeing is the Olympics raising in uh, estimation, so the top athletes want to compete mm -hmm. at it more, so then the competition gets better. Um, I I think there's probably a lot of factors as to why there's the yeah because they are doing a lot of record breaking and yeah. setting and they're and, not they're not running like downstream in the Seine yeah. like the last <laughs> yeah. time this happened <laughs> right um, yeah so they so these okay Cola Main in the 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 Finn also won the one the ten thousand meter race I think that's ten thousand meter I don't think that's a typo ten thousand meter race with a world record time. Of 31 minutes, 20.8 seconds. Silver medalist Louis Tuanima of the U.S. was Hopi and a teammate of Jim Thorpe at the Carlisle Indian School. Silver medalist Buen and bronze medalist George Hudson of Great Britain were both killed in September 1914 in combat in World War I. Pretty early on, too. Uh, the marathon was held... Oh, here we go. This is... Speaking... <laughs> And uh, speaking of, um, uh, just so listeners know, Sarah had to leave. She wasn't feeling well, so she's missing all my foreshadowing paying off. 
The marathon was held on a remarkably hot day with a reported high temperature of 32 degrees Celsius or 89.6 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Oof. Instead of a circular course, they ran out to the town of Solentuna, turning around, turning just beyond the main village church and ran back to the stadium. The race boasted a strong field of the top long-distance runners of the day. America entered 12 marathoners, the maximum any team could enter, including Louis Tuanima, who had already won a medal at the Games. Do we have the, the checklist? So we've got from the, the really bad marathon, right? The roads that are made of dust. Have we fixed that? Is this a road that's not made uh, of no, dust? No, yeah. They, they said their roads were too bad for uh, cycling, but they're not. They're, they're not they're, as bad. They're actually fine. Yeah. Great. The packs of wild dogs. Have There's we no solved wild packs dogs. of wild dogs? No wild Great. Dogs. The literal poison. Have we solved the literal poison <laughs> in the watering station? Okay. I, as far as I know, nobody was dosed with strychnine. All right. We solved most of the problems that Except I can remember heat. from the previous ones. That is pretty bad. The heat is pretty bad, and that's one thing that they wouldn't be able to solve. In an ep- upset that probably should have been expected, South African marathoners Kennedy MacArthur and Christopher Gitschum both won-, won gold and silver respectively, with American Gaston Strabino claiming bronze. MacArthur is something of an anomaly in American history, as literally nothing is known about him other than the fact that he was from South Africa and ran a total of six marathons in his career and won all of them. I don't know why we don't know anything about these South African athletes. <laughs> Were all records from South Africa destroyed at some point in, like, the 1940s? I don't know. It's like there's no newspaper articles about them. There's no diaries. There's no letters. He just won six marathons, including an Olympics in 1912. I mean, good for him. Yeah, we know that. (laughs) There have been only a handful of deaths during or directly because of competition in the Olympic Games... I mean, we talked in the past about the, I mean, we we were talking about this before we, I think we recorded, the water polo from 1904. In the life-saving hole. Yeah, the life-saving watering hole, whatever they were calling it. Um, So those, there was like a third of the guys who competed in that water polo tournament were dead within a year from like typhoid or something. And there's some suspiciously yeah. uh, rare disease. Yes. Uh, well, typhoid, I don't think at the time was rare. It was just a more like. A third of this. Group yeah, of it was a, like, it, it was remarkable how many of them died after swimming in that lake, I think was the thing. But it wasn't like during the Olympics. Right. Um, it was over the course of the next year. Um, so. But uh, one of the deaths directly because of competition in the Olympic Games. Uh, was of Portuguese marathoner Francisco Lazaro. He was never close to the lead, and about 30 kilometers or 19 miles in, he collapsed from the exertion and the heat. He was taken to Seraphim Hospital, but never revived, and died 6.20 a.m. the next morning. So that's our first death at the Olympics. It's, I mean, that sucks, and it sounds like it should have been so preventable. Like, he had a team he went to a hospital yeah but it's also i mean the medical technology wasn't Mm, really that's true um and i don't think even now i don't think that kind of heat is normal in sweden wouldn't now they would cancel that race oh yeah definitely definitely (laughs) they don't they don't run marathon generally uh they don't run marathons in 90 degree heat if you know I, i think the ideal is in the 70s they but This was the first time cross-country races were held at the Olympics. 
that they did not make it easy on the British or the continental Europeans who were used to the hilly, who were uh, not used to the hilly, heavily forested terrain that Scandinavians usually ran in. I only run in hilly forests. What is this flat track you have? <laughs> Blasphemy. This this is not uh, my my Viking DNA does not like your round track. Uh, they also weren't told what the course was going to be before the race and had to follow along the trail the day of the race, which was marked off with a red string. Uh, but I don't know what, this is the cross country race. I didn't, I didn't, for some reason I didn't put down the distance for this. Um, Hannes Kolmeinen of Finland won gold with Swedish runners, Helmar Andersen taking silver and John Eek. Iki taking bronze. Kolomainen couldn't carry his team to winning the cross-country team race, though. That was won by Swedes. Finland took silver, and Great Britain managed to edge out Norway for the bronze. So, good job, guys. Hurdles. The only hurdles event was the 110 meters, and nobody could challenge the Americans. All that matters is, have we invented the hurdles that actually fall down if you don't make no, it? No, I don't think that yet? Nope, you don't have those? Don't break in people's legs? Yeah, I think that doesn't happen until, like, the 50s. It shouldn't be that hard to invent. Yeah. They're just hurdles that fall in one direction if yeah, you hit them. The L-shaped ones that are like light and made of aluminum. No, I think we still have the heavy and inverted Even if they're tees. heavy, if they fall, yeah. that's an improvement. No, these are like wooden inverted T's uh -huh. still. Uh, okay. Be good. The, the hurdles event was the 110 meters. Nobody could challenge the Americans. They swept. The only other nation represented in the final at all was Great Britain with Kenneth Powell, and he came in last. Speed walking. No! Yes. <laughs> no! I thought we were past this. <laughs> nope. This was the first Olympics that had the 10-kilometer walk as an event, which it would be off and on until 1952. And we finally got our shit together. All the favorites were British, but up-and-coming Canadian George Golding pulled off the upset. He had competed in 1908 in London, placing fourth in the 3,500-kilometer walk and 22nd in the marathon. When he took the gold in the 10K walk in Stockholm, he sent a telegram to his wife that read simply, One, George. <laughs> One, stop. No, can't stop. Walk fast. Fast walking. Don't stop. Actually, run. <laughs> then stop running when they notice you. But keep running otherwise. Gotta hate race walking so much. Relay. The Americans were also favored in the 4 by 100 meter relay, but this was the first time the batons were used, and the Americans were disqualified for a baton exchange that happened outside the zone. Great Britain, Sweden, and Germany made it to the finals, but Germany also screwed up the baton pass and was disqualified. Great Britain won gold, and Sweden took silver. The Americans managed to keep their act together for the 4 by 400 meter relay, but not and not only won gold, but also broke the world record. France took silver, and Great Britain bronze. The baton pass is one of those things that when you watch it happening, you're like, that shouldn't be as hard as it is. But I can only imagine how impossibly hard it is, considering how many times it gets screwed up. Um, I mean, personally, I don't know that I trust myself to hand something to someone <laughs> if we're both walking down a hallway without, you know, slowing down and turning a bit and kind of, you know, getting that solid handoff. Like, I don't doubt that passing some something off to someone while sprinting is... <laughs> The hardest, most dexterity challenging part of this entire event. Yeah. I am kind of wondering if, like, did they spring this whole part of the competition on the teams without any foreknowledge? Like, 
this is the first time they had it, but they were. I think they knew it was ahead a known of time that it was quantity. Coming. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, it, it was also the first time they had it at the Olympics. I think it was a thing that like happened. Right. So anyway, team race. The Finns were favored in the 3,000-meter team race with Hannes Kohlmann leading the team. The Americans managed to beat them out in one of the qualifying heats and went on to win the gold in an upset. Sweden took silver and Great Britain took bronze. Great Britain managed to do this despite not winning a single race as they got a bye in their qualifying heat and then came in last in the finals. So good job, guys. <laughs> so they got the medal. They, they did. They just didn't win... It was again. It was like a bye in the first round. That they How got to do the you finals. get a bye if you didn't win a race yet? I don't know it, because there weren't enough teams to fill out the whole bracket. Ah. So that there was only two. I don't rounds. see any problems here. <laughs> high jump. <laughs> the Americans were favored in the high jump, and they did win gold and silver. But Hans Lischi of Germany managed to spoil the sweep and take silver. He might have done better. But a number of interruptions that completely broke his focus. This is a comedy of errors. You're going to read this excerpt. Ooh. Lise was completely unnerved. He failed twice. Then, just as he had composed himself for his final attempt, a gun went off to signal the start of a race. Lise waited for the, for the race to end and then composed himself once more. This time, the band began to play. <laughs> After nine minutes, a Swedish official approached him and asked him to hurry up. This was the final blow. Lisa ran at the bar, but missed completely. <laughs> this, this poor guy. I do feel that the gun is reasonable. The band maybe should be allowed to play. It just broke his cause. Like, every time he's trying to compose himself, like, something noisy and weird would happen, including official being like, come on, let's go. Like, I really want to really know what song. I hope it's, like, the most jarring, like, dubstep drop the bass <laughs> equivalent of whatever orchestra they had set up. Standing jump and standing high jump and long jump. Ray Yuri had retired in 1908, so the standing high jump and standing long jump were open for the taking. American Platt Adams had been chomping at his heels for a while and took the gold. His brother Ben won silver, making it the second time in Olympic history that brothers won gold and silver in the same event at the same Olympics. I think the other time was shooting in 1900. Was American? That sounds right. Is that when they didn't want to compete against each other and one of them? Like, no, that was the that was tennis. That was tennis. Yeah. No, it was the two brothers, and then one of them later was like acquitted of attempted murder because he shot at his wife's lover from the porch. <gasps> right, and he wouldn't have missed if yeah. he were trying. <laughs> right, because he was it's like, it's not really an attempt. He's an Olympic. If I'd meant to do this, you'd but the, be dead. The ginger green. He was an Olympic gold medalist. Look, <laughs> yeah, the guy was like twenty feet away. Yeah. Like, yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, uh, these two brothers won gold and silver. Constantinos sleep. Oh God, there's a lot of consonants in this. Sick. Sick. Laritas. I'm adding things. Of Greece took bronze. He won gold in the standing long jump with Platt Adams taking silver and Ben Adams taking bronze. This was the last time the standing jumps would be Olympic events. It just wasn't the same without Ray. <laughs> we should have retired this sport with him. Uh, yeah. So another event the Americans dominated was pole vault. They swept, swimming gold, winning gold and the next two tying for silver. Gold medalist. Another question on the inventions of the sporting apparatus here. Had we yet invented the little knots for you to pole vault yourself up with? Or are you still just kind of winging it, sticking to the dirt road? Um, I think they had the notches at this one. Okay. Because they noted that it wasn't there in London. And that was even unusual then. Mm, okay. uh, 
So, yeah. But they don't have the flexible things yet. It's still, like, the hard poles. Bamboo, right? It's not, Yeah, bamboo or, like... I'm trying to remember what else they made it out of. It was, like, crazy stuff. Yeah. Right. Whatever stick you got lying around, yeah. it's fine. Uh, they swept winning gold and the next two tying for silver. Gold medalist Harold Babcock broke the Olympic world record in the process. Albert Gutterson set an Olympic record on his first qualifying jump for the long jump. He didn't come close to matching it in any of the subsequent rounds, including the final, but he still won the gold with Calvin Bricker of Canada winning silver and George Eberg of Sweden winning bronze. Triple jump. The Ahern brothers, Tim of Ireland and Daniel of America, were the favorites for triple jump, but neither competed, and so the field was open for the Swedes to sweep. Shot put discus hammer throw javelin. I just kind of threw them all together. Ralph Rose. How many? Two? Symmetrical? No, this is just the. I don't think we go into the two. I'm not sure. This is just the one hand. Ralph Rose of the U.S. was past his prime. He had been the dominating force in shot put since, since 1904, but set his final world record in 1909. Up and comer Patrick McDonald was a serious contender. Not that Rose was going to make it easy for McDonald. He set the Olympic record in his first qualifying round, then broke that record in the second qualifying round but couldn't keep it up. McDonald set the final Olympic record of the day with his gold medal performance in the final round. Rose took silver. Taking bronze was American Lawrence Whitney. Rose redeemed himself with a two-handed shot put. We did it. We got there. <laughs> beating McDonald. Vikings. And Finland's Elmer Nicklander to take the gold. Martin Sheridan had been another total dominator in discus. Remember, this is the guy who, like, in the one, like, decathlon or whatever like tore up his leg with his cleats oh the guy who, yeah and he's also the guy who like would skip practice all the time to like drink and hang out with women he was not of the mind that the sporting life required training or yeah, like, that. yeah like he, he was a good he seemed like a good time uh martin sheridan had been another total dominator in discus his career started in 1902 and he retired in 1911 so it was anybody's game in the end, the game went to Finland's Armas Taipal, who took the gold with an Olympic record throw. There's a lot of Olympic records in So, this. and this one, again, we can't blame on timing. Yeah. It's distance, and we had distance before this, presumably. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the distance changed at all. They were just using, like, the Lower same... gravity altitude? I don't think it's that... I don't think it's that high altitude. It's a high longitude. Latitude? Latitude, yeah. High latitude, but I don't think it's that high altitude it's in actually Stockholm. more gravity to high latitude. It's, I don't think that's how gravity works. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, he took the gold with an Olympic record throw. Americans Leslie Bird and James Duncan taking silver and bronze. Tapal also won discus throw, both hands. Elmer Niklander added another medal to his growing pile with a silver, and Emil Magnuson of Sweden took bronze. Another great who had retired between 1908 and 1912 was hammer-throwing legend John Flanagan. Remember this? No! Yes, he's... <laughs> yeah, our, like, Irish-American cop who, like, found... He was, like, the only guy who wasn't in college in 1900. Didn't he go with those guys to Paris? And he's yeah, like, he just he, showed up and yeah. tossed hammers around, I <laughs> yeah, think. like... Oh, yeah, he retired between 1908 and 1912. He had done... He had, like, he had been around since 1900, at least. Matthew McGrath had won the silver in 1908 in London behind Flanagan. And with Flanagan's retirement, was free to embark on his remarkable reign. His career started in 1907 when he finished second in the AAU meet and lasted until 1928 when he finished fifth at the age of 48. He set two world records, one in 1907 and one in 1911, and in Stockholm he was unmatched. 
He set an Olympic record in his gold medal performance. Canadian Duncan Gillis took silver, and American Clarence Childs won bronze. Scandinavians were obsessed with javelin at the time, and while there were a lot of strong contenders, it was generally expected that the winners would be from those countries. The Finns swept two-handed javelin. Eric Lemming of Sweden won gold in regular one-handed javelin. Juho Saristo of Finland won silver, and Hungarian Morik Kozan Kovacs managed to get a bronze in there representing the continent. <laughs> The 1912 decathlon was one of the first times the event was held. Before 1911, the event was known as the, quote, all-around championship. And there was a five-sport event called the pentathlon in 1906. The difference between the all-around and the decathlon was in the decathlon, the events were chosen with an emphasis on speed and jumping events. There were only two decathlons held before the Olympics in Stockholm, both on October 15th of 1911. One, competing decathlons? Yeah, one was in Munich, Germany. That was won by Carl von Halt. The other, in Göteborg, Sweden, was won by Hugo Weislander. Going into the Olympics, Weislander was favored to win the gold, though it was anticipated that American Jim Thorpe might give him a run for his money. <laughs> You've probably heard of Jim Thorpe. The name rings a bell. He was one of the first American sports superstars. Mm-hmm. The son of a Sack and Fox nation and Irish father and a French and Potawatomi mother so his parents were both biracial uh, white and native uh, his second fox nation name was Wakthow Huck translates approximately to the bright path which uh, from, what I, from what I was able to find like the story is that there was a lot of lightning the night he was born so they that's what they named him that. <laughs> like, all right. Um, he can hang out with all the Thors that have been in yeah, this right. <laughs> He grew up in Oklahoma with the Second Fox Nation and went to college at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, there, his incredible athletic skill was first noticed when he was walking past the athletic field when the track team was practicing and on a whim, in street clothes, jumped a five foot nine inch long jump, which is considerable. He was also he also caught the attention of Pop Warner, who coached him in football. Football or football? Football. He also competed <laughs> in baseball, lacrosse, and ballroom dancing, winning the 1912 Intercollegiate Ballroom Dancing Championship. Nice. He was a two-time All-American football player at Carlisle. In 1911, he caught national attention when in a single football game. As a running back, defensive back, place kicker, and punter, he scored four field goals and a touchdown to single-handedly score all the points in an 18-15 to upset of Harvard. If only fantasy football had been invented yet, <laughs> right. he would have been the best pick. You would be, people would brawl over <laughs> Jim Thorpe. He was incredible. In 1913, he signed with the New York Giants, launching his incredible career as a professional athlete in both baseball and football as a player and coach. Jim Thorpe had never competed in a decathlon before Stockholm. He was chosen for the Olympic team after his stunning performance in the pentathlon at the Eastern Olympic trial. Thorpe won the gold in the pentathlon a week ahead of the decathlon, winning four of the five events. We'll talk about why we didn't talk about him earlier. Uh, He won long... I'm trying to 
trying to think. Okay, yeah. He won long jump, 200-meter race, discus throw, 1,500-meter race, and came in second in the javelin throw. This resulted in a final score. Oh, this is, okay, this is in the, I was like, why did none of this come up? Uh, this was in the actual pentathlon. This resulted in a final score that was more than 400 points over silver medalist Ferdinand Bay of Norway. A week later, he competed in the decathlon. The 10 events spread over three days. Oh, no, that was the pen... What am I looking at? I think he just won too many things. Yeah, like, that's the, the thing. The lists don't having... track. <laughs> All right, so we're going through. A week later, he competed in the decathlon. The 10 events spread over three days. Day one was the 100-meter race, long jump, and shot put. Day two... Oh, jeez, I lost my place. <sighs> just start listing sports. We'll assume he won them. Yeah. 500-meter sprint. 1,200 meter bicycle race, <laughs> six two. caliber shooting guns, whatever. Day two was the high jump, 400 meter race, discus throw, and 110 meter hurdles. And the day three was the pole vault, javelin throw, and 1,500 meter race. The much anticipated showdown between Thorpe and Weislander was not to be. Thorpe crushed it. Of the 10 events, he had two fourth place finishes, four third place finishes, one second place, and three first places. He won by over 700 points. It was an unheard of accomplishment, particularly for somebody who had never competed in a decathlon before. He competed in all the individual sports contingent to it. The thing about the decathlon... You just gotta do them in a row. In three days. It's fine. (laughs) Just individually win at everything, and then you win at the cumulative thing. At the closing ceremonies... dynamic programming problem. When when King Gustav V of Sweden presented him with his medals and trophies, he reportedly told him, Sir... You are the greatest athlete in the world. To which Thorpe replied, Thanks, King. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a good reply. Thorpe's victory was not to last, though. In 1913, news came to light that he had played minor league baseball in North Carolina in 1909 and 1910. This meant he was a professional athlete. Baseball's none of the sports in the decathlon. He got paid to play a sport. The American AAU and the IOC acted immediately, disqualifying his victories and stripping him of his medals and trophies. This set off a controversy that would last 70 years. Until finally, in 1982, the IOC ruled partially in his favor. They restored his amateur status and named him co-champions with Weislander in the decathlon and Bai in the pentathlon. Unfortunately, it was about 30 years too late for Thorpe himself, who had died in 1953 at the age of 65. I mean, he seems to have had a good career otherwise. I don't think we need to feel too bad for him. Yeah, but uh, it would have been... He would, it it was been like cool incredible. to be like the like, best. Yeah. I mean, he's still the greatest athlete in the world, according to the king. <laughs> so, the king didn't say, you're the greatest amateur athlete in the world, right? <laughs> so, miscellaneous... This is a crazy story. Like, this is the other half of the marathon that I didn't want to put right next to the guy's death. We didn't talk about it during our discussion of the marathon, but one of the strangest Olympic stories comes out of Stockholm. Twice. Okay. Shizo Kanakuri was a marathon runner representing Japan. He was one of only two athletes they could afford to send, and he was chosen due to his world record time of completing a marathon in 2 hours, 32 minutes, and 45 seconds. Travel from Japan to Sweden at the time was difficult. It took him 18 days to get there, first by ship and then on the Trans-Siberian Railway. 
Between the hard journey and the unfamiliar food, it took him five days to recover, and he was still weak when it was race time. He succumbed to the heat, like so many others, including the ill-fated Francisco Lazaro. But as fate would have it, after he lost consciousness, he was discovered by a local farming family who nursed him back to health. Humiliated by his failure, he quietly returned to Japan without informing anybody of his whereabouts or what had happened. So, we seem to have lost the part where there's a team keeping an eye on you to take you to a hospital. There was only two guys. Like, the, the whole Japanese team was two guys, and he was one of them. And I don't know what the other one did. He wasn't a marathoner. Okay, well, so much for that part of the safety measures from the marathon. Yeah. Um, as far as Swedish officials knew, Kanakuri had simply disappeared in the woods, never to be found again. That's fine. <laughs> Except he qualified for subsequent Olympics. Okay, so <laughs> at the event, you're going to just think, oh, this guy wandered off and like got eaten by wolves or whatever. <laughs> whatever happens but, like, in the Swedish wars. Once he shows up in records like the following year, you can assume, oh, he just went home. But I think what the thing was, the Swedish officials weren't really keeping track of this that closely. Like, they weren't... Did they, did they pronounce also, him dead? Like, no, they just were like, I don't know what happened to that guy. He never showed up at the finish line. We don't know what happened to him, was like their official thing. Okay. But he wasn't dead. He went home. His family knew he, nobody was looking for him because he went home. Yeah, this seems so, fine. Uh, it, he qualified for four subsequent Olympics... 1916, which was canceled for obvious reasons, 1920 and 1924. He actually competed in the 1920 Olympics, placing 16th. Did they clock him from when he started that marathon or from no. when he started the original marathon in Stockholm? In 1967, Swedish television discovered that he had been alive all this time and offered him a chance to return to Stockholm and officially finish the race, which he did. <laughs> Shizu Kanakara's official time for the 1912 marathon is 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. This is the first time in this podcast that I'm getting what I see as like attainable goals for myself in an <laughs> Olympic capacity, or an athletic capacity rather. Like, I, I'm never going to jump a million feet or however far it is i don't pay attention when you read off those measurements but like i could probably do a marathon in 50 years <laughs> he said at the time it was a long trip is he the only person who has marathons on record within other marathons on record <laughs> yes it was a long trip along the way i got married had six children and ten <laughs> grandchildren <laughs> this guy's great Kanakuri later died at the age of 92 in his hometown of Tamana. The reason he did not compete in 1916 was the same reason nobody competed in 1916, World War One, which is a topic so enormous and so far outside the scope of this project. That it will take the next several episodes for us to cover in adequate detail. I just urge you to listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Blueprint to Armageddon. It's a six-part series about World War One, which explains it in far more detail than anything else I've come across. It would take some time for the Olympic movement to come up to recover from that cataclysmic war, along with the rest of Europe. De Coubertin himself would lose his beloved nephews to the war, and many, many athletes would die as well. We've mentioned a few. 
there's a Wikipedia entry that's just athletes who died in Olympic athletes who died in World War One, and it's pretty long. Uh, so when we come back, we'll be talking about the 1920 games in Antwerp, and a lot will be different. So that is it for our pre-war series, and next time will be, like I said, 1920 in Antwerp. Remember to like, rate, subscribe, review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Follow us on Instagram. I've set one up since the last episode. No, you didn't. We don't have an Instagram. We do have a Twitter, Olympic Size Cast. I might set one up between when these episodes air. It, well, you know what? I don't have the name for it yet because you haven't done it, so I can't give a shout out. You can email <laughs> us at olympicsizepodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback. And, uh,. That's it for us for tonight. Thanks for listening. Get ready for Antwerp.